0: Welcome to the Let Christy Take It podcast. Let Christy Take It would like to thank our sponsors, Irish Woodcraft. Check them out on Instagram and irishwoodcraft.ie for all your guaranteed Irish best spoke furniture needs. On this week's episode, Derek and Kieran are joined by Andy Moran. Andy is a film and music video director who has worked with iconic acts such as Guns N' Roses, Aretha Franklin, George Michael, Pet Shop Boys and Paul McCartney to name but a few. We talk all things November rain, West End Girls, and as it's Christmas we had to ask about shooting the festive classic Last Christmas Boy Wham. Wow. Let Christy Taker bring you Andy Moran.
1: Andy Moran, welcome to Let Christy Take Us.
2: Okay. Finally, Hello. finally. Hello,
1: finally. So we'll jump straight in, Andy. Born in Kensington, what are your memories of growing up in London in the 60s?
2: Well, I was very small in Kensington
1: <laughs> in the sense that
2: my, my, um, my dad was a, a TV, a young TV director. My mum was like a script editor and stuff like that. And um, so I was born in the old Brompton Road. Um but we moved out to South London pretty early in in my i think I was about six seven when we moved out to um south london to near Dulwich. so i wasn't i wasn't i don't remember Kensington too much but um I like to use it as a uh, well, i'm a true Chelsea supporter because I was born five minutes from the ground <laughs> so I trot that one out when it's convenient um but growing up in the sixties um <laughs> it was a much simpler time than it is now. That's all I can say. Um, I don't know. I just, I remember long summers, you know, I remember being out all day when I wasn't at school, you know, playing football, making box carts, you know, tree houses, seeing friends fall out of trees and injure themselves. <laughs> there was, um, and there was like, we used to rock, you know, take our bikes down to like a, a bomb site, you know. Uh, you know, it hadn't been built on since the war. And in, those, in the sixties, you thought, yeah, the, the war was mile, miles away from anything we were, knew about. But now you look back at it from two twenty two, you think, God, it wasn't that long after the war, really.
0: If you think it was probably it. closer to the sixties than we are to the eighties. Yeah, exactly. That really was.
2: Yeah. So I just, and then you know, there were seminal things. I was always into my music, and you know, I remember, you know, like my older brother influencing you know you know he 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 was the first i remember him bringing home sergeant peppers and his hand shaking as he took it out of the gatefold sleeve and you know looking at the peter blake imagery and stuff like that on the on the cover and then i followed him into the kind of you know hendrix and cream and all that kind of stuff um so it was i just it 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 felt pretty uncomplicated when I was growing up in the 60s. But I think I was aware of, because I was still quite young in the 60s, but I I think I was aware of kind of, you know, because my parents were in the arts, as it were, the kind of radicalisation of how people lived, you know. I'm not saying I experienced the summer of love or anything like that, but I was aware of people's hair getting longer and flower power. And, you know, not that I was involved in that, but just, it's a kind of cultural shift, I remember that.
1: You mentioned your parents were in the arts and your dad was Christopher Moraghan. He was. He directed Jewel and the Crown and many more. He did. The the fact that your parents and, and, and I know also your granddad and his, his brother were in the arts was inevitable that you would end up in the entertainment industry. Well
2: it's a weird thing, you know. I mean my dad's my mum dad's mates were writers and designers and you know, and they used to have Kind of, you know, people over for dinner and stuff like that. And, you know, I remember popping my head around the door, you know, and drinking whiskey and smoking cigarettes, which seemed pretty normal at the time. It seemed pretty radical now, probably, you uh, know, in our age. Um, but it, it, there was, we were, you know, there was dead, you know, definitely stuff that influenced, you um, you know, me and my brother and my sister's kind of upbringing in that respect. And, you know, that. I remember my dad pulling me and my brother out of bed one night. He was watching a John Ford movie, and and he was saying, look at the big skies, boys. I think he'd had a couple of whiskies actually. But he, look at the big skies. You know, that's Phil Megan. And we are like, oh, we've got to go to sleep. But, you know, it rubs off because... My grandfather was a production designer, and he was a fantastic artist. I've got a lot of this stuff here behind me from old movies and stuff like that. Um, And my grandmother on that side was a kind of painter and stuff like that. So my mum was into music as well, and that's why I kind of got the interest in the music. And I went to art college, I went to Campbell and then St. Martin's, wanting to paint, really, or design and paint or whatever. But, you know, it's one of those things, you know, I ended up running the film club and I just kind of knew a bit more about film than a lot of the other students at the time. And being in Soho, which was a kind of godsend, really, because, you know, during what, you know, in between term time, we would get runner's jobs in Soho and, you know, cutting film up and down the street and all that kind of stuff. And we saw that we were there, kind of that whole revolution from analogue into digital really. Um, but you know, we used to go, you know, hang out in old cutting rooms and see these old boys holding up little trims of film and stuff like that. And, you know, if you wanted to dissolve between two images, you had to send it off to the lab for the night. You couldn't just do it on your, on the computers and stuff like that. So it was um it was kind of yeah, I think it was inevitable. <laughs> go back to your original question because I I was just kind of drawn to it. And also I had a lot of friends who Parents wanted them to, you know, be in the, you know, legal, you know, lawyers or doctors or whatever, and weren't encouraged in the arts. You know, I think the biggest single difference with with us was it was, that was a fact, it was part of family life. No, No one was ever did a nine to five job in, you know, it was always freelance and job to job and stuff like that. So it was kind of ingrained in the psyche, I think. Did your dad
0: ever bring you on set, Andy? Do you have any good stories?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, I have one really good one. When he was at the BBC, he got me and my brother to wait in a. Cor- he'd be, I, I don't know. I don't remember why we visited BBC TV Centre, but we did, and said, sit there in the corridor. And then one of the presenters from Blue Peter came out and gave us a Blue Peter
0: bird. So you we know, were like, "Yes!" So there were perks. There were perks. I hope <laughs> you still have that. There were a few, Bob.
2: Yeah, somewhere. I've got it somewhere. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, things like that. And also, you know, there was a couple of things. He did a, a Peter Nichols play called The Gorge, which I remember someone, some holiday, we kind of moved down to the West Country for, which seemed like a lifetime, but it was probably only about five, six weeks. And, um, you know, it was, uh, and, and, and and there was a scene in a kind of caravan park or, or actually on top of Cheddar Gorge where people were going and have picnics. and we'd get thrown in as kids as you know running through the background and stuff like that so that was kind of you know exploited at an early
0: age <laughs> uh, other, other than stuff that your dad worked on Andy was there any films or movies that made you say I want to do this this is what I'm, I want to get the film weirdly enough I think he was
2: more at that stage he was doing more tv and theater I know he went on to do a couple of movies and stuff like that but I was really, talking about the 60s and counterculture, and my brother being three years older than me was kind of ahead of the curve in that. And I remember being really influenced by that whole kind of late 60s, early 70s American cinema. Do you know what I mean? Like Easy Rider, yeah. Clute, and you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, Godfather, and One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest. I mean, just that's, I think, in a weird kind of way, wanting... I wanted to get more into film because of those films that were made in, out of Hollywood at the time, but were essentially almost like independent films in terms of, you know, if you think about what Hollywood had been and the studio system, that was like their version of punk. You know what I'm saying? And and I think, you know, being a kind of mid-teenager and you got those kind of films coming out late. No, I was, well, my teenager in the early 70s, but those, you know, all those influences like that, and Bowie and T Rex, and it's all kind of mashed up into the like, yeah, definitely going this way.
0: <laughs> and you attended St. Martin's Art College. What was your plans post graduation?
2: Uh, well, it's a weird thing because I went there, I did a, a foundation 76 to 77 at Campbell, and went to St. Martin's, and it was you really felt the kind of post-punk kind of we don't need a job, we can do anything we want kind of vibe. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, so i do not sure I had any plans. I mean, I played in a, you know, I played, everyone in the art college played in some kind of band. I played in a band, a couple of bands, and used to gig around. You know, there's a circuit in London of pubs and clubs and stuff like that, and we did all that and the Blitz thing was going on, but I wasn't particularly into that. You know, I was more into the kind of I don't know, kind of Latin thing at the time and stuff like that. So but it was just I think it was just like anything is possible. You know, you're in the center of London where you've had punk, you then, you know, then you got all you know, I used to my sister used to hang around with, you know, the boy George's and the hazy fantasies and people like that. And there was Blue Ronder Ala Turk, and there was us, which was a band called Havana. Let's go, and, and you know, it was just. I always thought I'd be doing something to do with the arts, and then, of course, in the early '80s, suddenly, you know, I'd done a couple of our own music videos and stuff like that. MTV Europe opened up. MTV America had been going for a few, few years, and that you know, and all the first generation of music video directors were doing you know, like Russell Mulcahy, or, you know, um, Steve Barron or um, all those guys were doing kind of big bands like Duran Duran and Ultravox and Queen and, you know, David Mallet and stuff like that. And then there was a bunch of us kind of came out of college just after that. And because of MTV Europe, they suddenly, well, every record company wanted a video for every band they had. You know that was, was on the record label, and they wanted them cheap, and they wanted them fast and that's how we kind of filled a gap um and once you'd had one or two videos, you had a show reel once you had a showroom, <laughs> you were off and running basically, and I realized pretty quickly that I wasn't you know my my love was in you know the the visuals rather than i mean I love the music, but uh, I, you know I, I was a guitar player who could. Just about, you know, play five chords. So that was never going to be a career for me as a band member. But the visual side of the thing, I was all over it. And um, I realized pretty quickly that uh, that was kind of a golden opportunity, kind of in the right place at the right time.
1: Uh, Andy, do you remember the first music video that you directed? What was your first gig? First gig was King Love and Pride.
2: <laughs> and the reason I got that video was because there was a guy at Martin's called Perry Haynes, who was part of that whole Blitz thing and that. But he, but he was kind of more punky than Blitz, or really. if and he, he, he decided he was going to be a manager. He's just one of those mouthy guys. He used to run doors at clubs, all that kind of stuff. You know, he was a great character. And, you know, he literally called me up and said, yeah, you did film college, didn't you? And I went, you know, what are you doing now? I said, well, I'm trying to do some music videos. Oh, I've got a band King. You know, you got three grand or something. <laughs> go, go make it. And that's that's what we did. And, um, you know, as I say, there was, there was a lot of work you know, cheap work in and around London the, from the record companies in London, because um, I'd say the the big guys were doing the big artists, and you know we kind of filled a gap. You know, we were new, young, you know, hungry guys who want you know we would do anything for something.
1: Love and Pride. It's a, it's it's a good start of a resume. Another good Irishman, Paul King, if I remember easy. Yeah,
2: well, he he went on to you know be um, MTV. The face of MV Europe. Yeah, he was, yeah. yeah. And lovely guy was then. Last time I saw him, he still is, you know. Which I'm not saying it's rare, but you know, he was (laughs) kind of definitely good
1: guys. (laughs) Was was the one gig, Andy, that you did, one music video you thought to yourself, that's it. I'm after making it. Um I'm talking about your early the early stuff like in the eighties.
2: Yeah, I mean I think I mean I did a lot of kind of, you know you know pop poppy 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 stuff you know from you know kim wilde to nick hayward and all that stuff but you know i think starting to work with wham and george michael was a game changer for me um because they were just so much bigger than everybody else it wasn't you know a uk just a uk thing you know i mean look at now i mean every year i do like you know towards christmas four or five interviews or podcasts about last
0: christmas (laughs) now don't ruin it first don't tell me this was filmed mid-july in (laughs) the studio
2: not quite but it's a good story too but anyway and which is probably one of my least favorite (laughs) videos it was just kind of a needs must video but i think when things really started to kind of come together in kind of what i was interested in which was you know i've always thought performance is a big part of any artist and and you know there were a lot of fantastic music video directors around the time, like Godly and Cream and stuff, but they were into, you know, some really clever idea or something that hadn't been seen before. Whereas for me, you know, 50, 60% of a video was fine if it was performance. For me, if if the artist was a fantastic performer, I think the one video I did with Wham that really was a game changer for me as expressing what I liked was uh, I'm Your Man. It's just got such a great vibe. And, you know, it's it's a heart back to kind of soul music, rock music. And George had gone from his fluffy Princess Diana hair. Suddenly you had, you know, black hair, leather jackets, you know, earrings. You know, it was a kind of pre-faith kind of look. And uh, we shot it at the marquee in London, the old marquee in London. And I think, you know, actually, I thought. We nailed that one. We nailed that one. You know what I'm saying? So... And that opened up, you know, because I was always a bit of a rock fan, as you can see from the rest of my music video career. Um, But that was the one that kind of got me, started to get me away from pop and into, you know, dirty carpet venues, if you know what I mean.
0: (laughs) Andy, Andy, we can't let you go without giving us that last Christmas story. Our listeners would kill us.
2: Oh, well, you know, it it was one of those ones where they they were riding really high and management called me up. George has written a Christmas song. You've got to you know find somewhere. This was in October, you've got to find some, you know, snow in Europe. And you know, we've got to shoot this video, gotta shoot it now, because he's going on tour at the end of the year and all this kind of stuff. So I literally bopped around from you know Switzerland to France to wherever, you know, trying to find not only snow, because you can get always get snow on glaciers and stuff like that, but it, you know, but normally then you have to, you know, helicopter everybody in, you know. So we wanted, but he also, George wanted, you know, kind of idyllic kind of village kind of vibe for it as well. Not that we see much of Sasfe the village in the end, but, and I literally was bobbing around with, you know, from one, one place to the other. And then I got a call, I mean, uh, late one night from a scout saying, it's going to dump a load of snow in a place called Sasfe in Switzerland. Get your eyes over there. So I did called the manager and they literally flew everybody out the next day and we shot it and weirdly enough we shot it in the snow about a week later most of that first snow had gone it it was another three or four weeks where they had proper snow again so we hit a window and and the anecdote of that story um is that we flew back and when we flew back you know we were picked up you know us and the band and Various other people were picked up by you know a passenger van or whatever, and George said, "Oh, I'm not coming with you. I've, I've got to do something." And I, and I said, "And I said to him 'Well, you've got to do something. Are you got to go home? We're all knackered from.'" The show. He goes, "No, I've got to go and sing a vocal on um, this new charity record, which was Band Aid." Well, well. and that was literally the day we got back from the last Christmas show. And the irony of it is, is that Band Aid number one.
3: Yeah
2: kept Last Christmas off the number one spot for years and years and years and years and years. Basically, Last Christmas became the biggest number two record ever until a couple of years ago,
1: I think. Did I read somewhere that George Michael gave the royalties of Last Christmas to band-aids? He did. He did. Yeah. He did. Obviously, that was 1984 and still relatively a young man.
2: Right?
1: Yeah. Um, and no doubt, at least in, in England, at the forefront of the video music revolution. Mm-hmm. And with your success getting bigger and bigger, was it still a case of you picking artists you wanted to work with, or was it like, make hay while the sun is shining? A bit of both, really. I mean, you
2: never totally are able to pick an artist. And they, go, and they go, thank you very much. <laughs> it's usually the artist picking you, new you go, thank you very much. Um, but, I, I, yeah, I had a lot of people who wanted to start to work with me and stuff like that. And, but, there, you know, there's still gaps. You know, I'm, I wrote three or four treatments for the Stones before you know, when they're in their 60s, I think, rather than their 80s. <laughs> you know, same with Bowie. I think I wrote two concepts for Bowie, but never got to gig. So, you know, but then... Someone pick up the phone. Billy Joel and we did three videos together. You know what I mean? Or Prefab Sprout or Blow Monkeys. But I did five each. You know what I'm saying? So it was, it was, it was interesting. I mean, you're kind of in the eye of the storm, and I don't think it's till many years later you kind of, kind of say, well, what happened then? how was I making decisions? I mean, it just felt like I was, I was off and running, and you know, take you know, taking opportunities and going to America, which was great because I got to look, work with a whole different kind of crew set and different production people and and stuff like that as well. And so it was um, and it kind of broadened your horizons. You know, you can now start writing concepts that are out in the Mojave Des- Desert or you know Joshua Tree, <laughs> instead of Brighton.
1: <laughs> you know what I mean? In so, fairness so, um, Andy, you're like a an advertisement for the electricity take a podcast because we're only talking 20 minutes and you've already mentioned about four or five of the guests we've had on this show. Yeah, we've, had, we've had Mark Royley from Blue Rondo mm-hmm. or Matt Bianco, yeah, Nick yeah. Hayward, Neil Conti, yeah. um uh, Martin McAloon, you know. Wow. Dr. Yeah, Robert.
2: Yeah, next week. I love Dr. Robert. In all fact, right. you know, do you know the vi- one of the videos we did together, which I think um which one was it? It's the first one we did. Um
1: it doesn't have to be this way.
2: Yeah. Uh it didn't have to be. Yeah, I'm just sorry, because I, mean, I get the timings going my life. It actually made the Billboard, no, no, Rolling Stone Top 100. I think it's about 96, 97. And I couldn't believe, because they weren't huge in America, <sighs> but they had it. I think that might have been a hit over there. But that was in the Top 100
1: videos in Rolling well, Stone. They were big enough at the time, one of the only uh, contemporary artists to get a song on the Dirty Dancing soundtrack, which went on to be uh, One of the biggest try. soundtracks
0: of all time. And Please Academy Tree, And Please Academy 3. And yeah. Academy 3. <laughs> Andy, can I bring you back to the concepts just for for to enlighten us a little bit about like when you come up with these ideas, how does it work? Do you put it to management or like with the likes of it's a Bowie or a Rolling Stones, does it go directly to them? How does that work out? A
2: bit of both, really. I mean, most, you know, most first time bands or bands in there, you know, they have had a couple of hits and it's mainly done through the record company. But the bigger the artist is, the more you tend to start dealing with managements and stuff like that, because they basically tell what the record company, what they're doing. So there's a kind of, um, there's a kind of paradigm shift there, you know what I'm saying? Um, but normally, you know, it was kind of, you know, nowadays we do everything on computers, and you know, we put amazing color treatments together, and we source stuff off the internet, and you know, and and the pictures and images, and you know, treat, treatments these days have to have to look incredible, whether it's for, for a music video or a commercial or even movies or TV series, which is part of what I'm you know doing now. And but in those days, it was you know you had a you either went to the library and photocopied copied some stuff um or you had books you know I used to collect photographic books and stuff like that anyway since I was a student and one thing i think was i was quite i was quite comfortable writing and and being able to articulate my ideas in a written form as well and i think that always you know in the world of music you know Pop music, rock music, modern music, and record companies—you know—to be articulate is a gift. <laughs> <laughs> um, because um, I'm not saying it's the only way to get a job, but it was—it it definitely, you know, picked up the momentum in the sense that you know I never found it that difficult to stare at a blank piece of paper and think, "What the hell am I going to going to write?" You know, and and you also you learn a shorthand pretty quickly. You know, it's like when you're shooting a video, I remember the first few videos, I probably over storyboarded everything and, you know, knew every shot I wanted to shoot. And, you know, when the sun's going down and you've only shot half of it, you know, you get pretty good at saying, oh, well, let's do the whole song from this angle. Let's do the whole song from this angle. And then you kind of start, to, you know, in the edit, it, it really comes into play and... So then you start saying, well, I only need three or four different strands in a video to make it, to intercut and make it work. So you just get better at it. You get better at, you know, economizing your ideas and articulating your ideas and doing what you're quite good at. You know, I mean, again, one of the the advantages of early videos for me, you know, because we'd come out of college shooting Super 8 and Bolex and stuff like that. When I got offered West End Girls by the Pet Shop Boys, you know, I wanted it had such a kind of huge cinematic kind of vibe to it. You know, it was atmospheric, it felt like London, all that kind of stuff. But the only way we get that was to, you know, literally shoot it on locations without permits and, you know, with Super 8. and, And it kind of suddenly, you know, from, some of the early stuff, which was shot in a white studio because you couldn't afford a set, you know, it suddenly kind of would open up into this more cinematic style and stuff like that, which um, became a bit of a hallmark for me, you know, because, and then instead of trying to tell a story, you know, I would pick things that would atmospherically kind of hang together with the music, you know, as I say in the edit and kind of create little nuggets of, of mood and atmosphere and stuff like that. So uh, kind of learning on the job, but it was you know, it's really interesting looking back on him.
0: I don't know if you've recently seen the uh Pet Shop Boys performance at Glastonbury, but the video was used to great effect.
2: Yeah, I was there. Yeah. Oh, you're there? Wow. Brilliant. Well I, I live I live you know, over that hill oh, oh no. is, Pil- is Pilden, is And I'm in the next village over Northwood so we get free Sunday tickets. So
0: great and here when you see it did you know it's going to come up did he have to let you know or when you see it coming up you're going that's me me I I
2: I'm more likely to last Christmas in Morrison Supermarket (laughs) (laughs) but um, especially in December but um, no I I, weirdly enough I'd seen Chris and and Neil a couple of months before uh, about a project that they're involved in that they some people wanted me involved in, we had a meeting and they mentioned they were going to be part of the show. So I hadn't seen it in action until the other night, but yeah, you know, you're proud of that stuff. You know, it feels like, you know, that you were involved in something really, really cultural. You know what I'm saying? That
0: that, that made a difference at the time. And, you know, yeah, it, was and like it was a stunning visual. It was a stunning visual and I, I, I yeah, watched it. Yeah. Stunning of all the set that they've yeah. done. That part was really amazing.
3: You think you're mad, too unstable Kicking in chairs and knocking down tables In a restaurant,
0: in a West End town Call the police, there's a madman around Running down, underground To a dive bar, in a West End town In a West End town, a dead end world
3: With the Eastern boys and Western girls In a West End town, a dead end world
0: Yeah. Andy, you've worked a lot with George Michael, and eventually, George is credited as co director. How did that work?
2: <laughs> it was a bone of contention. Um, because There's a couple of the videos he's, he's credited as co director. Look, it's it was about I'm not saying George was not involved and was always collaborative, that's how we worked, and we, we would put the you know, so in terms of the way we worked, it's fine, but he. His management and him were, you know, he just, it was at a time, especially after Faith, where, you know, we were, I started to win awards for things like Father Figure, and suddenly, you know, I was told the night for the MTV Awards that George was going to go to pick up the award as the co-director, and I'm like, what? <laughs> so there were times we'd, <laughs> I had words with management about that and him, and he didn't work with me for a while, and then we came back together and, you know, whatever it is what it is they're the artists sometimes you know if you look at all George's albums he's you know credited as the producer of the music you know the co-designer of the you know things and and I, you know I've said it before in the public domain you know he was a control freak and he was you know had an ego to support it. <laughs> which I think is the nicest way of saying it now I mean don't get me wrong he was absolutely brilliant for me and, you know, my career tra- trajectory and stuff like that. And a great bloke and very supportive. But there were moments where he would take it a little
0: far. And that's all I'm really prepared to say.
3: Okay, okay.
0: <laughs> okay, Andy, as the 80s end and you head into the 90s, how did you change your approach moving into a new decade? I <laughs> Well,
2: I kind of got punched in the face in about 92. Don't mean literally, but you know, I talk about the George Michael connection. You know, Axel Rose had seen Father Figure, which was a video where George doesn't perform, and one of the co directed mm-hmm. videos. Um, and he wanted, you know, he wanted to some, you know, big cinematic thing. He had an idea for a trilogy of videos, and you know. We did Don't Cry, and then November Rain, which has become – I mean, that is the video that keeps on giving. I mean, again, more than last Christmas, I, I seem to do, you know, 20 podcasts a year or <laughs> interviews a year about November Rain. And um, and because it's done nearly 2 billion views on YouTube, it's its just it, – it's, it's like an unstoppable train. And um, as soon as we had that, you know, kind of huge success – and don't get me wrong, it was like Spinal Tap. You know, along comes Nirvana, like, you know, the great, you know, kind of punk thing and, and fucking knocked it, excuse my friends, knocked, knocked it to shit, basically. And, you know, you suddenly go, oh, oh have I become as big and verbose as that, uh, as, you know, guns became, you know. So my little kind of, I don't know if you've ever seen a video called Garden of Eden. But um, I did like a one-shot punk video with Guns N' Roses on the end of a shoot, and that was kind of my my lasting statement. Was like, you know, I haven't forgotten where it came from. But um, so yeah, going into the '90s, and and I'd had such an amazing run at music videos, and I wanted to, to you know, I wanted to get into other stuff. I had young kids. You know, I'd been kind of everyone thought I lived in LA, which I did You know, I was literally doing jobs there, doing jobs here, and you know, it's just bonkers kind of scheduling. And I wanted to slow down a bit and kind of maneuver it into either films or commercials or whatever. Just, I guess now looking back at it, more as a kind of rest. I mean, to sustain how many videos I did over you know ten to twelve year period was probably too many.
1: It was upwards of 50 yeah. and coming, leaving the 80s, heading into the 90s.
2: no? Yeah, I mean, uh, I, yeah, it allowed me to pursue, as I said, you know, to pursue things that were, you know, more of my kind of taste, whether it was rock music or, let's say, Prefab Sprout or Blow Monkeys or whatever. You know what I'm saying? You know, stuff I liked. I've always quite liked the eccentric. Side of pop, not the out and out pop yeah. rubbish, but kind of eccentric kind of pop and and great songwriting and a kind of quintessentially kind of British kind of anarchic approach to music and stuff like that. So, and also I was tired of travelling. So, I mean, literally, we came back forth from LA and and um, even though we never really lived there, but just I just kind of cut it out of my my intro for for a long while and and i felt i also felt i really felt there was a momentum change with the whole nirvana grunge seattle thing which was fantastic it was exciting and but it kind of you know i was suddenly in that box of oh he just makes me you know big spinal tap kind of video
0: a huge image our next question because why we're on the guns and roses go on because uh, honestly the,
1: the 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 answer you just gave there andy <laughs> Answered about three of our questions. (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned the videos right and we can't just push we could talk about anything else but we cannot move this interview on without doing a little bit of a deep dive on on the uh, the trilogy for guns and roses right mm-hmm. you come off you mm-hmm. use your illusion one and two uh 91 mm-hmm. the the unbelievable and stylized visual epics were, were mm-hmm. you already in in um in discussion with the band on stories before the albums came out or was it was it all done afterwards?
2: No, no, they'd done the album and then they were kind of through a real turmoil thing. I mean, I think Slash and Izzy were pretty strung out on drugs and stuff and and then that's why Izzy left. He just, you know, he said he stayed in Guns N' Roses and stayed until he would have killed it. I mean, he took a personal decision and that really kind of threw up um, the band into a bit of turmoil, you know, because... Axel was, you know, the driving force and Izzy was the driving force. So that's, I mean, Axel was kind of there on his own and he kind of took decisions himself that they were going to do, you know, he'd written, you know, two, like whether it's Don't Cry, um, Le Memoraine or straight you know, big operatic kind of nine, ten minute songs, you know, and that's why it's a double album really and, you know, no one had done that for, for a long time. It was kind of I don't know, it was kind of his vision, and, and and he was quite remarkable in that respect, because I know everyone thinks Axel's a bit of, bit of a nutter, well, he is in a way, but he's also very focused, and he's very into his kind of vision and legacy and stuff like that, and I remember when I kind of presented ideas and producer-presented budgets. And by the way, there's been so much rubbish talked about the budget of that video, those videos. I mean, they weren't cheap, <laughs> don't get me wrong, but some of the figures I've heard were just way off the mark. But um, but then again, I don't often correct that because that's part of the myth, isn't it? Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> In the sense that now, you know, people go, why did it take seven days when he's scheduled five? You know, well, two of the days the band didn't turn up. You know what I mean? So <laughs> inevitably... You know, costs and that are going to go up. But no, in terms of ideas, Axel had to, he, one of his friends called Del James, who was a journalist, writer, and written a a kind of short story book called Without You, which is is just based on Axel really about a kind of rock star who kind of you know kind of dissolves into mad- madness and kills his girlfriend or whatever. So there was this kind of loose idea and to do a kind of trilogy but there was never really a proper plan you know there were certain things that, that Axel wanted to do in Don't Cry to do with him and his regressive therapy and you know the doctor coming himself coming into the lab into the hospital little room and there's three axles i mean all that kind of stuff kind of came from where axles come but then you know the rocker in me was like yeah let's shoot on top of the trans-american building in downtown l.a and let's have a couple of police helicopters <laughs> let's have slash driving a car off the cliff and then rising from the ashes like a phoenix you know and so they kind of let me play with it and i also kind of knew, have a long songs i didn't want to shoot of what I call a linear narrative, an A to Z narrative. And one of the, f- talking about that kind of counterculture movies or directors that I loved growing up was, was Nick Rogue, who did performance and stuff like that. And there's a movie you probably know called Don't Look Now yeah. with um, Julie Christie and... Uh, oh, Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland, right? And if that movie is, there's no proper timeline there's premonitions there's flashbacks there's flash forwards and you're constantly trying to have to put a narrative together and that's exactly what i wanted for the trilogy because i in a way i i knew i couldn't really do an a to z linear narrative that would do it justice you know it was kind of better to play with people trying to fill in the gaps you know then give them everything on a plate and that's, I think, one of the lasting legacies of that. That's why now I still have people saying, you well, know,
1: when you did that. The legacy it is, you know, fairness. <laughs> Would you yeah. ever do a couplet really?
0: and a director's cut, cop- you know, like the Godfather trilogy and put them in the right order?
1: If I
2: could get out of the footage, I might do <laughs> but I mean you know the thing is now since the guns have come back together you know they're managed by three or four different people you know Duff's got his own manager Axel's got his own manager Slash has got his own manager <laughs> you know and it's so hard apart from them getting on stage and playing all the way around the board and making fortunes getting anything else done I mean they've been planning to go in the studio for the last three or four years again it hasn't they've done one or two tracks it just hasn't happened it's just it's a complicated situation. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, we shot on the Use Your Illusion. Well, we shot, I, I had a cameraman and a camera assistant on the road with guns for two years. And all that footage has never been seen. And it's all sitting in
0: a vault in LA. There's a Disney special coming up.
2: Well, they absolutely should be. Yeah. Yeah. But I think,
1: you know, someone's going to have to get their checkbook out
2: for, yeah. for them to even think
1: of that. I think money, money talks, does not it? You spoke about the mythology, <laughs> right? And you, you know, those <laughs> people talk about the budgets. And, and there was talk that the budgets for the three videos was just colossal. I mean, at the mm-hmm. time, you can tell us if we're wrong, but 1.5 million for November end, Making he, it probably... It
2: got, got close to that, but it started off at about 750, about half of that. It went over the million, yeah, but I'd say it was more like 1.2 and a half than 1.5. In
1: the early, In, from from the, let's say the budget's 1. 1. 1.5 million, probably one of the most expensive, if not the most expensive music No, it wasn't, it
2: wasn't the most expensive. No, I mean, Jackson was regularly spending a lot more than
1: them. So, yeah, but Scream, I think it came a long time later. One of, let's say one No, of the, but Thriller, look at Thriller. Yeah. That was like so Thriller was, that was, was more was than 1.5? Spirit. Oh, it was, 80, 80, it was like 80, three or four 80. million. Yeah, that was like three or four million. It was like a movie budget. Um, Does it still put pressure on you as a director, like a music video director? My God, like, you know.
2: No, no. Yes, and no. I mean, yes, because you're working with, you know, uh, an artist a bit like George Michael at the height of their kind of fame. Uh, and that's the kind of pressure. But to deliver, I don't know. I mean, I was a pretty experienced music video director by then i knew how you know i knew if you compartmentalized videos into certain things and there and and you scheduled it properly and you shot it there was a good chance that you would get the video so i I think i was pretty confident of that and i quite like the madness of, of things you know not quite going to plan or them turning up late. You know, they were like vampires. If you wanted a, a daylight <laughs> shot, you had to keep them up all night shooting something else and shoot it first thing in the morning. And I got quite a kick out of stuff like that because you have to think on your feet. And when you think on your feet, you know, you're making decisions that improve the video rather than, you know, doing it by numbers.
0: Well, November, rain slash, outside the church, cigarette hanging outside the mouth. Tell us how that shot came about.
2: Well, there you go. There was, it was a bit of a, uh, not an accident, but there was, when we were shooting in the ch- main church where the, you know, the big church where there's the um, uh, the wedding. And, you know, you remember you see, you see Slash starting to walk out of the church. He actually, I'd actually seen him do that to go and have a cigarette. And I went up to him and said, at the end of this shot, let me do it again. Can you just turn and walk out? Because I just knew it would give us a transition. It wasn't until after that that, you know, we kind of thought, well, what you know, that could get him out of the church into a different arena. And um, and also the, there's a scene earlier where we've seen, which we put together, you know, very early kind of digital things where Axel's playing a piano in a, an old kind of ramshackle church. And so that was kind of one of the themes, you know, and, and, and this, you know, time-lapse clouds outside and all that kind of stuff so i kind of came up with i said to axel "Slash, why don't we you know slash walk out of there and he just walked straight out of a you know the same kind of clapboard church which the interior was a set somewhere in the middle of nowhere and we'll do this solo. so thing it kind of evolved as we were shooting that video i again a bit like the last christmas story i had to go i was kind of going all over new mexico <laughs> and arizona looking for a church in the middle of nowhere uh, that, that i could shoot around and most you know church clapboard churches, or, you know, surrounded by, you know, their communities or, or on grassy knolls or whatever. <laughs> you So well, I couldn't quite get the look. I was, you know, and then someone said, you should go. There's a um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. There's a, um, a, a ranch, you know, kind of, which is like a film set. They used it for young Guns, And. They got a small clapboard church on that with nothing inside it, but it's on a pallet, and the guy, will, you know, give you know, give him a couple hundred bucks or drag it out to the middle of the desert. It literally evolved like that. So once I kind of got, had the cinematic look I wanted, then you know, and Slash bought into the idea of him coming out and doing the solo. But I don't think what Slash was expecting was five cameras and a helicopter and all that kind of stuff, you know. And but being the real kind of. Rocker embracing the moment, you know, there was dust from the helicopters going. He was just, you know, with his hat and his hair and his whatever. He didn't give a fly fuck. <laughs> he kind of knew, he kind of knew this was cool. And it's become this template for, you know, this big kind of rock and roll, you know, um, guitar solo. And, um, you know, I've seen so many bands, you know, not copy that, but. You know, I think, you know, Bon Jovi did one with Richie's sambor on top of, you know, one of those, you know, red tours in, in the middle of Arizona. You know, I mean, everyone was trying to outdo each other after that for the biggest, ama- most amazing, you know. Bit of roses. Sort of. <laughs> Go, bit <bed> of roses. <laughs> uh, but, you know, everyone was trying to do that then. So, you know, I do feel I had
0: a, that had a cultural impact, a lasting <laughs> cultural impact. Oh, definitely did. And actually, I have to ask you, we were on the subject of Guns and Roses. Strange, who's it here? It was the Dolphins.
2: The deal with the Dolphins was after Don't Cry in November Rain, um, Axel had split up with Stephanie. And that maybe would have answered a lot of the threads of the narrative, <laughs> which we now couldn't complete because she'd gone. And literally he said, I don't want another woman. and I know another female in the video? I'd rather I'd rather be hanging out with Dolphins. And we went, "Oh." <laughs> oh that's very (laughs) and Bob's your uncle we did it (laughs) so I mean it's literally uh, I'm not saying it was chaotic at all but it was definitely embracing the kind of madness of one of the biggest rock and roll
3: bands in the world from the dawn of time we came moving silently among you immortals Throughout the ages, he has traveled through time, fulfilling the prophecy that there can be only one. But the ultimate evil has found him. His name is Cain. Highland is out there somewhere, and he owes me four hundred years. One is a master of the sword. I know who you are. Connor McLeod, born into the Clan McLeod. The other, a master of illusion. Some say he's the devil himself. Two enemies from another time are about to collide in this one. <laughs> chapter in the epic war between good and evil concludes. There can be only one. No! Highlander, the final dimension.
1: I want to move away from the, the music videos just for a little bit because myself, Kieran and Mark, the whole electricity team, are fans of the original Highlander movie. Russell Mulcahy's Highlander. Oh, right. Now famously you you uh you directed Highlander 3. How did you get no. the Highlander 3 gig from the Guns N Roses videos really? Um
2: but it was kind of on the end of all that madness and my my brief cuz number 2 Highlander 2 had been such a disaster for everybody I think. No one really understood what the hell that was, um, kind of futuristic and stuff like that. And, and my brief was going to try and get as close to Highland of one as possible. So, you know, took it back to Scotland and all that kind of stuff. And um, But it was from the Guns N' Roses stuff. But I didn't have the greatest experience on that, I you know, because there were a lot of producers at that stage. They pre-sold the movie, you know, in sales for a fortune and gave me about a third of that to make the film. And I was stuck out in Montreal for most of the time, doing it in minus 20 degrees over the winter. And I I just, some of it's fine. Some of it I really like, but some of it is it's okay. You know what I mean? And it's, um, I'm glad I did it, but maybe I didn't want to make movies right at that moment because I was away from the family for for too long. If I'd known I'd been out, I thought I was only going to be in Canada for three months months and I was definitely yeah you know, I would have thrown the family out and it just kind of put me off doing movies at that stage of my life and my career. I just I could just see the madness kind of continue if if, um, if I'd kind of pursued that. So I kind of I'd had the kind of nirvana moment, had the, the movie moment, then I was just like I'm going home. I'm gonna keep my head down and maybe you know forge some commercials and be at home a bit more. You know, to be around the family and stuff. So, you know, and I had I'd had a pretty amazing twenty years at to that point, twelve, fifteen, twenty years. So, it was definitely I took a kind of personal choice to kind of backtrack a bit.
0: And as you said, the experience wasn't great in the movie. But did you decide to ditch the alien subplot, or was that told? Let's move it now completely. Yeah, I
2: mean they'd, they'd got rid of that already. The
1: alien thing. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, they wanted. Yeah. And I wouldn't mind, but Russell Mulcahy directed part two. He did. How can it go so wrong? How could it go so I don't know. Anyway, uh,
2: they were in, they shot it in Argentina. They were stuck down there. You know, the stories I've heard, they're all stir crazy and everyone was fighting, you know, because the first one had been this, you know, successful movie. And, you know, success has many fathers, you know, and, um, you know, Christoph Lambert wasn't. On top of his game at that point. You know, he's now sober and stuff like that. But, you know, he won't mind me saying that because he's proud of being sober for 30 years now. But um I think they had a, I don't know, you know, I can't really comment on it. It wasn't my film, the second one, but they they had a lot of lot of problems, I think, doing it and agreeing on what was the way forward and and all that kind of stuff. And so when I got it, it was like, you know, we're going back to, you know, going back to our roots as it were and but unfortunately you can't have uh, Sean Connery
1: (laughs) great now what am I supposed to do given a (laughs) Um, kind of a poison chalice almost
2: yeah but I loved as you said I loved the first one so it was it was a challenge and some of the sequences like you know he when he kind of you know retrenches to Scotland and you know we actually should you know he didn't have drones then he actually did that in hail and sleep round you know the coast of Scotland. That, you know, that kind of stuff really works. I really like a lot of the music we did with um reena McK- uh, McKenna was No, um what's her name? Um Canadian um artist. I think of her name. It's like Lorena McKenna but it's not if you know what I mean. Anyway so I'm proud of some of those kind of sequences and stuff like that. And 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 some of it, but you know, I was made to use local French Canadian actors who try to be Americans, and the accent wasn't. Quite, you know, it was just one of those things. You know, oh God, you know, just just get a half decent movie out
0: the door Andy, in the end. Andy, when you're to through that experience, Andy, do you know it's it's going to be a struggle to finish this and get a, get something decent out? Yeah, and that's kind
2: of the hardest thing because you know, it, it, when you're doing music video. You're only delivering three or four minutes. And if sometimes, it, you know, hopefully your strike rate of making it work is pretty high in movies, it's a marathon by comparison. So, you yeah, know, then you have to, but you know, you would draw on experience, you know, um, in terms of, you know, montages with music, you know, that was kind of, you know, a, a given for me because of music videos and stuff like that. So, as I say, I think there's bits that work okay. I think it was better, much better than two, better than four. So, um, But, you know, I, I, I wasn't experienced enough about the politics of it and how to fight the right battles, if you know what I mean, with producers, you know, because it was like two American producers, two British producers, a French-Canadian producer who was, you know, siphoning off stuff away from me. And, in fact, some of the effects, you know um, – it was on Dimension films, Dimension Films, which was Miramax's um, um, kind of futuristic side of their business. Um, I had to fly to New York to show my car and they go, "Oh yeah, you know, really like something. We want to, but we want to spend another, you know, want you to spend more on special effects." And I said, "I haven't got, you know, I've never been given that budget. You know what I mean?" They said, "Well, we're going to send up, you know." Such and such amount of money to Canadian producer because we want you know want to really jazz up the effects. And I said, don't send him the money; it won't get spent on the screen. So, in the end, I had to get them to take delivery of the movie, and then I flew to America and we spent the money in York just to get that done. You know what I mean? So then it becomes a war of attrition, and 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 because you're not sure about the politics and who to fight and who not to fight. it just becomes very wearing, and you know, it kind of, it really more than any of the ten years of doing, twelve years of doing music videos. That movie strung me out in the, in in terms of tiredness. You know what I'm saying? It was, I'd say, probably nearly a year off in reality. I mean, I did jobs after that, but it was, I was just like absolutely fucked for. All.
1: And we've talked about some of the artists that you've worked with, right? And some of the biggest artists of all time, Michael Jackson, Billy Joel, and we mentioned Friends Electricity It, podcast, Prefab Sprout. Mm. Of mm. all of the musical projects you've worked on, of all the gigs you've done, has there ever been one where once it was finished and it was out in the world, you kind of sat back and said, I could have done that better?
2: There's always a few. <laughs> I mean, I've always said, you know... Making a great music video is a is not about the, just about the video. It's a, it's having the right artist at the right time with the right song, and then you've got chances. You know, if you can hit a home run, you hit the sweet spot. You've got chances. Sometimes you have the most amazing artist, terrible song, great video. Sometimes you have a terrible artist, great song. <laughs> you know, whatever combination you want to put together. Um, but when it when when there's a home run, it you know it, you know it happens, um, and yeah, there were there were a few, yeah, I don't know, it's hard to pick them out, you know, because I probably filed them away into my into my kind of you know trash bin um, the, into in an old mental trash bin. Yeah, um, there's always there's always things in a lot of videos even some of your best videos, you wish you'd done a a better job on, I think, you know what I mean? Um, I mean, Last Christmas was an example. I mean, I did it because I was working with George, and in a way, I wish I'd kind of bothered to make it a bit better than it was because I now it's it's such such this huge, you know, myth. I mean, you couldn't get two more different videos than Last Christmas in November. and And for years, I was like, you know, Oh God! What did I do last Christmas? Because you did. You were working, that was you were his guy, and that was it. But I think you know that's one that was left out there. I wish I'd spent a bit more time fighting for like Let's say another day and shooting things a bit better. It was just a kind of in and out bish bash bosh bomb. You are gone and yeah. I mean, there's things in that that I, I still cringe about. There's a, but there's a few. There's a few. Um, it's um, Someone said to me once, Do you make horror films? Oh, sorry, do you make horror music videos? And I went, Yeah, <laughs> <I'm> quite a <laughs> few of them. And they've they got nothing to do with horror. <laughs> They're just ones that I wish I'd never done, you know? Mm-hmm.
0: But, um, well, Andy, what's next for you? Is there any plans to get all this down on paper? Because I make a great book.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think during the, this being the 30 year anniversary of November rain and stuff like that, it's. I think um, I've talked about it so much that I really probably should get it down. <laughs> in, in, I mean, I started writing some notes about yeah, all the people I've worked with and stuff like that. And, um, you know, just, just yeah, I mean, it's uh, I mean, one of the projects I I want to do, which I've pitched to the estate is of George Michael, is, that, um, is to do a kind of in-depth kind of analysis of all his videos, not just the ones I did, but, you know, whether it's Fincher's Freedom or you know, big TV, you know, did the one with Mary J. Blige or stuff, you know what I mean? And I know most of these people and I've given an idea to kind of curate a real, you know, kind of collectible, you know, coffee. I hate the word coffee table, but you know, like a coffee table, but that uh, there's been so many kind of salacious documentaries about George and the end of his life and his demons and his, you know, whatever he was doing and, how um, happy he was and stuff like that, and, it, and and there's been so much negativity out there about him. I'd like to do something that has, you know, has a lasting kind of cultural impact that really kind of charts, you know, everything from wham through to you know older and and stuff like that. So, and and kind of curate it. So you know, I I interview some of these people, but you know, as I say, I know most of them and we we'll probably have short stories to share but also you know there's some fantastic visual imagery as well as his presence in the videos you know he worked with some great people as well mm. so i'll pitch that to the um, estate, and i think that's going to happen in the next couple of years
0: oh brilliant that would be great well andy we'd like to thank mm. you for coming on giving your time you've been very generous with your time and great stories but before we let you go uh it's last orders in the bar you're down to your last pound there's a jukebox in the corner what song does Andy Monaghan play out to?
2: Girl Like You by Edwin Collins. Brilliant. Yeah, that's one of my favourite, favourite songs. I just love the sound. I love Orange Juice. I love yeah. Edwin Collins. I mean, I just... And it's that is such... You know, it's almost like perfect. I can't fault that record. In fact, when you sent me the email again... I kind of, you know, because there were various contenders where I won't talk about it because you only wanted to hear one. But but it, it just, I just realized it was my favorite song of
1: all time. I think <laughs> well, that's the song we're going to play out on. So, from Kieran, myself, and Mark, the whole Christie team, Andy Moran thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me.